this week on the Backtable Podcast. I think the best way of putting it is it's, it's kind of thinking about the heart by using a lot of different aspects in your treatment algorithms, using fluoroscopy, to use echo, to using CT, to use 3D echo, um, using different reconstructions, MR, to kind of understand and guide your interventions in a more complex way. I think that's kind of where we might intersect a little bit with IR, because right? the IR has been doing, you know, complex multimodality imaging interventions a lot longer than we maybe been doing in the heart. And I think we've been kind of learning how to incorporate these different things. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things endovascular. Today, we'll be delving into the realm of interventional cardiology and discussing structural heart disease with Dr. Rajiv Narayan out of Vassar Brothers Medical Center in Poughkeepsie, New York. Before we get started, I want to say a quick word about our sponsor, RADPAD. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information. You can also contact info at RADPAD.com for a free radiation evaluation and no-brainer radiation protection cap. And let them know you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. My name is Achal Sahai. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Tulane University School of Medicine, practicing clinical interventional cardiology. It's my pleasure to be here as a guest moderator with Dr. Narayan, who through hard work and perseverance has been able to set himself apart in the world of interventional cardiology and specifically structural heart disease. Raj, thank you for joining us and please take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so my name is Rajiv Narayan and my current titles are I'm the, uh, the Director of Endovascular Services, Co-Director of the Structural Heart intervention program, a director of interventional mechanical circulatory support at Vassarov Medical Center, New Vance Health. We're a sort of a, a building organization that uh, is becoming uh, very shortly a academic medical center, medical school started. And I'm just excited to like to chat with you guys about uh, a little bit about my career path and just what, what we're doing here. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. This is uh, this is fun to do, and um, I guess you and I. When, when did we first meet? Was it 2015, 2016? Yeah, that's uh, that's right. You know, it's kind of good fortune that our kids were in that. I think it was preschool, pre K together. We had a great friendship. But I miss the fact that we're not the same city anymore, but but still, awesome to keep in touch. Yeah, that's right. We were we were able to to bond when we were in our first jobs over you know, the trials and tribulations of, of navigating early career pathways from what I remember. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think trials and tribulations is a key point here. Kind of getting to that point, you know, I, I think we've probably spoken about so many times, but, you know, that first couple of years outside of training, it's uh, sometimes it's a little bit, of, a little bit disheartening. You know, I think uh, you kind of come out of training and you're thinking that you're going to have a certain career path. And that first couple of years sometimes isn't the job that you're, you're, you necessarily uh, expected or is necessarily what you wanted coming out of training. Yeah. Yeah. And especially for us, we spend eight years kind of in that, in that bubble. We, you and I did certainly, and you, you kind of get accustomed to doing these uh, fancy procedures and, and complex high risk things. And then, and then when you get out into practice, it's, it's a little bit different. Both of us were from uh, the Northeast, from the New York uh, tri-state area, and, and I went away, and, and you you were more blue-blooded in your training, and you, you stayed in uh, in the New York area for for med school, and then 
was it Columbia for internal medicine and then Mount Sinai for cardiology? And that's, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I did, I did one of those seven year programs for, uh, for med school. I was at New Jersey medical school, um, uh, turn around high school. And then after that, uh, went to Columbia for internal medicine, kind of stayed in the New York area, went to Mount Sinai, which is kind of a, a crazy fellowship program, um, with, uh, just a really high volume and, uh, also just some really, really great mentors there. And then stayed on there for an interventional year, which is people, you know, know the interventional cardiology world, I think Mount Sinai is well known as like the most aggressive interventional cardiology program in the country. It's just a, a really high volume, really, uh, really increased procedures, which kind of set me up nicely, you know, and I think that was kind of early on in this pathway of people doing a second interventional year, uh, which obviously you did as well. And, you know, we were kind of in that place in that path because now I think it's really commonplace for people to spend another year doing either a complex coronary or a structural or a peripheral year. And, uh, you know, at the time there weren't that many structural programs around, but I uh, ended up doing a peripheral vascular year at the Mass General Hospital where, uh, you know, just kind of luck would have it that things kind of uh, were allowing me to also scrub in on a lot of structural procedures there and kind of gained some experience. So kind of gained um, experience in all of the different realms of, uh, of complex procedures just coming from. So at, I think during your interventional year at Mount Sinai, you were you were very focused on on coronary intervention, but obviously Mount Sinai has a wide breadth of, of exposure. To their trainees. So were you doing structural and peripheral during your PGY seven year or that was yeah. more? You were. Yeah, no, you know, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, at that time, you know, thinking about how this transition's been so fast, you know, like at that time when I was, when I was kind of training, structural heart disease wasn't really a, a, a separate center track or a separate really pathway fully yet. You know, there was a couple of programs opening up. Really the only structural procedures that kind of were being done was TAMR. I mean, put this in perspective, you know, I, I was a resident on the first ever patients enrolled in the, uh, Edwards trial for, for Taber. And then I was, I was a fellow doing the TE for the first ever Taber patients enrolled in the Medtronic Corbaltron, the US Corbaltron study. And so like the point is that like, you know, when I was a trainee, these weren't commonplace procedures. And so, you know, there wasn't really a focus on structural heart disease. There was kind of these guys doing congenital stuff. There was these guys doing, you know, balloon valveoplasty, uh, which is just balloon expansion on valves. But there really wasn't like a whole realm. So it was kind of just mixed into training um, and whatever was there. Kind of hear about these procedures uh, and get excited about what was going to happen, what was going to come. But we certainly didn't have that, the foresight to know what it has become now. Well, that training certainly set uh, the groundwork for your current uh, successes. So t- tell us a little bit about your, your current practice. You were, you were tasked, you went, went there to, to get the structural program going. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Um, that, that was the specific role they were looking for, someone to kind of come in and build it. I think um, that's a great point. Cause I think that's something that I didn't really look at when I was coming out of treatments, you know, when I want to go out and like start something from scratch or build something from, from the core, it wasn't necessarily thrust upon me to think that that was possible. And, and this was kind of a cool opportunity to be able to sort of uh, help imprint it. So uh, what other tasks, um, did the group have for you in mind? Was it, was it completely focused on building a structural program or was there a complex uh, a CAD that they wanted you to, uh, to dig into and or peripheral intervention? Yeah, I think 
previous to my getting there, there was still a fair bit of volume that was kind of escaping. Um, you going from from uh, from the institution to to places like Mount Sinai, Columbia. I think that was a little bit of the appeal was that I was there for an years training. And so they were hoping that if there is a way that we could retain some of the volume, that would be really helpful. And uh, so I, I kind of looked at that leak of volume thinking that, hey, um, you know, in New Jersey, you wouldn't let anybody let like leak volume to anywhere because it's, it's so competitive. But there, the volume was so high that so you just kind of figured, well, we don't need to do these complex cases. And that, that to me meant that there was huge opportunity for growth there. So yes, they, they were hoping to kind of build on some of that coronary peripheral one too. So, and, and now you've been at Vassar Brothers for two and a half years. Is that right? Uh, almost four, actually. Yeah. Four years. Four years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you've been there for four years. You, you're established there now. What, what's an average day or week look like for you? Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I usually spend about three to four full days in, in, in the, in the cath lab. So every Tuesday and Thursday, usually Monday or Friday, you know, plus one or two or two books that I usually spend. And um, conversely, you just spend like one full office day, two, two full office days per week, typically. And your cath lab days, uh, what percentage of structural cases are you doing? What percentage of peripheral or coronary cases are you doing? Yeah, and this has transitioned so much over the last couple of years. Because when I first got there, I was not really a structural broker at all. And maybe just a couple of sporadic towers. That now, you know, we do about um, eight, eight to 10 towers a week. And so that's this occupying a lot of our volume. But we're doing like, you know, Four to four to six microclips. It's, it's, it's just yeah. I'm a lot of PFOs, ASDs. So I would say structural has kind of gradually made up to like about forty to fifty, not sixty percent of my volume now. It's just kind of grow uh, so much. So we have corner used to be obviously bread and butter for us, and still occupy probably about in the past it was about seventy eight percent, but now it's being relegated to about forty percent of my day, and then another ten percent of our peripheral stuff, uh, more or less. So that, that structural volume that you just referenced, I mean, that puts you in the, the top percentage as far as uh, total number of cases per year, at least Vassar Brothers, correct? Yeah, we're super fortunate. You know, when I talk to the reps, I think like for Mitra Club, we're at the top 1% country by volume for, for Tower in the top 10%. You know, for structural heart diseases, like binaria, like non-valvular, uh, that's like all closure device stuff, like ASD, PFOS. And I think we're the, the largest program in the, in the Northeast by volume. We, we eclipsed like, you know, Mass General and just a little bit ahead of like Columbia and Sinai for some period because we're just doing so many of these procedures uh, in adults that it's not. They do more than this in kids, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's crazy. You, you never expected volume to expand the way it did, but it's just been uh, a huge volume of these. That's, that's really impressive, man. And so, uh, 40% of coronary work, is that, is that high risk, a lot of high risk stuff, or it's kind of whatever comes on your plate, so to speak? You know, it's a little bit of the mix, you know, in, in the beginning, I was doing pretty much everything. Now we're not really able to cap everything because we have so much of the structural stuff. So I tend to only get more of the complex stuff. So a lot of, you know, Impella or Protected PCI, a lot of Aroda uh, would kind of help to start the app, the right team program in our institution. So all Aroda stuff was kind of me and got off the ground again. And, you know, it, uh, so I would say right now, I'll, I'll, I, I kind of helped to get the other guys uh, doing too. And, 
then they, they had been doing it in the past that kind of fell off for a couple of years, but kind of restarted it. And we, uh, so between like three of us, basically we kind of do all the complex procedures and we kind of co-scrub on everything. So I typically am co-scrubbed with somebody else for every procedure and then do a whole list of, uh, of them on my own as well. So. Well, that's, that's nice to have that set up. Peripherals. I imagine you just don't have time for what's so weird, right? Like I spent like an extra year, like you know, trading in peripherals, but that was kind of like occupying such a small percentage. You know, it's just, I think what happened is that you, know, you get so busy doing one or two things and as that becomes your focus, you start to realize that you, you're not able to be as good. The other things are just as have bandwidth to do it. So I still do it because I never want to leave a skill set that I acquired. Um, so nowadays, I, I only do the really, really complex peripherals. Like I don't, I don't do a lot of just like regular LDS, the regular LCDs. Like uh, I do, you know, the CTOs, the retrogrades, the uh, the safaris, uh, you know, bipedal stuff, subclavian mesenterics. Like anything that's like just kind of off the beaten path, the section of the entry. Yeah, I try to stay away from doing just routines because it's just, it's just uh, the time uh, will allow for me to be involved in all those procedures. Gosh, those are my favorite, the routines. <laughs> it's actually, not, ironically, it's my favorite too. It's just kind of the nature of the beast, you know? So I, we touched a little bit. So listen, your volume's a fantastic. And obviously you've, you've worked hard to, to, um, to create it. And Vassar Brothers has a great setup for you. You touched on it already. So 40 cardiologists, at least that's what the number was when you started. They have a, a expanding catchments area. Uh, is there anything uh, specific about the system that, that enables you other than that, that what we touched on to, to have this volume and efficiency. Yeah. I mean, you know, so to, to, to tip, the big thing is, um, it's having a really great referral network. You know, we have it a little bit in built cause they're all within the hospital system. So there's obviously a best of interest. The second thing is geography. You know, the reality is that the area that we're in catchment zone that we're in is far enough away from other massive cities, medical centers that there isn't a huge competition for patients that area and vice versa the patients in the area also prefer to stay local they don't want to drive an hour and a half or two hours to go you know into manhattan or go you know an hour and a half tours to albany so finding that we have a pretty strong referral sound helps to kind of keep things in a, in a good position for volume and then you know i think a lot of it comes down to things like you know just simple basic things outcomes and service um, you know when i first started it was all about just getting rid of perfect result, making sure for a physician you knew you were doing things. Um, it, just like any other practice, it was kind of starting out there and getting out and talking to people, uh, going over cases that you did and interesting things you did, and building on that experience. I think that, you know, word of mouth helps a lot. So much so that I think we recently, we've now done a whole series of this. We've done like fathers and sons who've had towers. We've had um, husbands and wives who've had like towers and mitral clinics. Wow. Uh, a bunch of like um, siblings and watch friends. It's, it's to a point that like, you know, we have just a bunch of friends of families and friends who are all coming in to get their things done. And, you know, when you get a good result for them, they're, they want to come back to their family members. That's kind of a funny, exciting endorsement. All right. Let's focus a little bit uh, on on the uh, nuances of, of your cases and your structural heart cases. So uh, for our audience who a, a lot of interventional radiologists and vascular surgeons, can you define structural heart disease and, and elaborate on what endovascular interventions are available to us? It's a great, great question because, you know, it's uh, so uh, I'm on the Sky Structural Heart Committee and 
the, the national brief for, for CUNI, trying to figure out like what to do about defining structural harm is you're trying to set up these more formalized definitions and things. And the reality it came to is that there's no strict definition. You know, the easiest way to define it is non-coronary, non-peripheral artery interventions for, for cardiac problems. And that's the most generic way to put it, but, but it kind of encompasses these sub-segments. It's valvular interventions on the heart. It's interventions on the wall. So the structural uh, components of the heart, i.e., you know, septa or, or other physical defects of the, of the heart itself that are not related to the, to the electrical or plumbing uh, systems. So diffuse that, uh, I think that a lot of people find that different people kind of gravitate towards it. So, you know, we've got some like congenital guys come in because there's obviously structural problems there. That's kind of so big too. We have just like the people who do aortic valve, which is like tablet or stuff. The people who do all the mitral valve, which is, you know, more mitral, mit and mitral placement. And then there's a whole series of people who do just the right side interventions, tricuspid, colonic. So, so there's the structural heart valve kind of scopes the whole realm, but I think the best way of putting it is it's, it's kind of thinking about the heart by using a lot of different aspects in your treatment algorithms, using fluoroscopy, it's using echo, it's using, you know, 3D CT or it's just using CT, it's using 3D echo, um, using different reconstructions, MR, to kind of understand and guide your interventions in a more complex way. I think that's kind of where we might intersect a little bit with IR, right? Because I think IR has been doing, you know, complex multi-modality imaging interventions a lot longer than we maybe been doing in the heart. And I think we've been kind of learning how to incorporate these different things. You know, in terms of like what we would do, we, we could do a lot of different things, saying and it's kind of growing day by day. Obviously the most classic things are tavern, which is valve replacements. But we're kind of learning how to do valve procedures on, on the other valves of the heart, you know, whether that's repairing them like with clip or potentially replacing them like with new colonic or new um, tricuspid valve technologies, or mitral valve technologies. It's kind of a growing thing too. I think, I mean, it sounds like from what you described um, when we were talking about your case volume, the majority of, of what we're doing uh, in interventional cardiology or structural heart disease is, is valvular heart disease. Is that fair to say with, with some ASD PFO closure and then some Watchman or atrial appendage closure? Absolutely. Yeah, I think valvular is still kind of a focus. Although that's growing, I mean, it's changing uh, because uh, like you just said, you know, Watchman is kind of growing, you know, year, year growth by percentages. It's, it's the largest percentage growth. And I would be surprised if Watchman kind of like eclipses all the valvular stuff in the next like two or three years, just because so many people want to get to that. But but yeah, I, I completely valvular is still kind of the big uh, focus of structural. Big chunk. And the greatest percentage of which is, which is TAVR at this point in time or? Correct. Aortic uh, valve replacement or implant. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I think the aortic valve, just because it's the most established and sort of now it's become pretty mainstream. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the very near future, again, that mitral might easily eclipse that just by the number of patients. But we're still waiting for technology to kind of catch up, catch up there. Sure. And I mean, as, as you alluded to, all these procedures are evolving and, and Taver, you and I just based on when we trained have kind of seen that the evolution of it. And you were talking about, you were talking about some of the initial cases in the partner trial, et cetera, and evolute trials, early evolute trials. And gosh, I remember scrubbing in for structural cases at Methodist. I remember being part of like a seven hour Taver. Oh, and uh, I'm, 
<laughs> or and, and even longer mitral clip cases. And now it's 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 evolved quite a bit over the years. And and for you, this procedure is it can be similar to coronary intervention for for many cardiac. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, it's um, you know, if I remember, like the first three patients I took care of, I was the, I was CC resident at Columbia caring for uh, first three patients that were enrolled at Columbia as part of the Edwards trial. And they all died. They all were just super sick. The procedures were really long. I remember, you know, wanting coding one of the patients for like at least an hour or hour and a half because they were like just they were so sick and they'd come in they were decompensated in the middle of the night we called the the interventional attending at that time and i think you know, he was like you code that patient until he dies because he was just like you you're not like dying it was just it was it became like this thing where we just imagined how could this possibly work you know like it's just it's just so jarring that this this can work as a procedure and, and in fairness in fairness to those those patient outcomes or, or those procedures, I mean, these were extreme high risk patients, right? You're right. You're right. They, they were yeah. replacement was not even being considered, and this was you're 100 percent right. These people were not people who were going to get another therapy. They were probably going to die anyway. You're absolutely right. And it was it, that that was the, that also the brilliance of how these guys set up the trials, right? These guys uh, who did this thought, you know, if we do this in super healthy people, and we fail. This is a dead technology. But if we do this in people who are really ill and we can get them something they couldn't get, then maybe we can eventually make this expanded. And I think that was a pretty, pretty uh, amazing foresight that they had. Yeah. So to, um, just to clarify for our listeners, aortic valve replacement, surgical aortic valve replacement was the standard of care for, for all patients until this technology was first developed. And then it was initiated with our extreme risk patients for which SAVR or surgical aortic valve replacement was not an option initially yeah no that's 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 exactly right that's well then um yeah and then you know fast forward now to like you know i think on on thursday we did we did four tabbers on thursday the last tabber we started at like four o'clock and like i literally i think punctured at 401 and we were out of the room at like 418 or 419 i mean it was just crazy how fast we've gotten you know i'm not saying we were trying to rush it but it's just it's just so much smoother as a procedure. You know, we, we yeah. learned to expedite things. It's amazing. What a change in the landscape of uh, treatment for these patients. Crazy. Um, you know, to have these. And, and the average stay for these patients now for you is, I'm sure it's 24 to 48 hours. So overnight, yeah, I mean, to be there. Yeah. That patient went home on Friday morning at like, you know, nine o'clock in the morning after they got their echo. So, yeah. So we, we've moved from open sternotomy in certain patients, right? And on pump valve replacement, right? To basically femoral arterial access and passage of a, of a valve over a wire uh, and deployment essentially. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So it's crazy how, how this, this is a transition for us. So let's, can you uh, describe kind of, uh, again, for our listeners, they may not know about the multidisciplinary approach and all the, all the work that goes in on the front end to make this this intervention, what it can be, as you just described nowadays. But let's describe a patient with severe aortic stenosis uh, presenting to your practice and, and just kind of the workflow and how they'll be worked up and assessed for therapeutic intervention, which may not always be uh, this endovascular intervention that we're talking about, right? Yeah, no, I think that's that's so important. You know, I think unlike almost any other aspect of medicine, the interesting thing about structural is that we work with so many people and so many people are involved directly in the care of the patient. So, you know, to start the evaluation, every patient has to be seen by a 
a cardiologist who's knowledgeable of TAVR, uh, usually interventions. And then in addition to this, has also received medicine searching at the same time. So, you know, in most instances, when you're seeing patients in any procedural plan, it's just it's a one-on-one discussion. Here, it's really, you know, you and your surgeon talking to the patient together. And that itself is already kind of unique amongst aspects of medicine's sort of heart team approach. And then to add to this, we have our imaging guys. So we have people who are CT, you know, specific, we have people who are interventional echo guys who do echo interventional stuff. And so they're usually focused on doing all these interventional echo procedures. They'll be involved in the decision. So all of us would sit around and discuss these patients, review their imaging together, confirm the kind of valve and route complexities. And then, you know, when we're in the case, it's kind of the same thing. You know, it's, it's us, our surgeon, along with the, the interventional echo team. We'll have, you know, obviously I understand our specific cardiac anesthesia team. We now have like just a couple operators who do only timer. So it's, it's gotten to the point where you have a, a very closed loop, but yet a very large team, people all involved in, in, in this patient's progress. And so it's kind of a unique place in medicine where we have so many people working together for one specific goal. So at most institutions, the, uh, the heart team is going to include a, a cardiothoracic surgeon, one or two, um, or maybe more, an interventional cardiologist, at least one, usually two, or, or, or maybe, maybe more, a non-invasive cardiologist who, who's focused on imaging. And sometimes, sometimes that may even be a non-cardiologist when you're talking about CT scans and MRIs, correct? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it could be, it could be, a, we, at previous institutions, it used to be actually a radiologist who did all of our CTs, so cardiac CTs, and so they were usually involved in our procedures. It just happens in our current place, it's a cardiologist, but yeah, it could be a radiology or cardiology. And then cardiac anesthesia, whether they're involved in, in the workup or just the case, they're a part of the team. So it's, it's quite a, quite a, takes a, a big team, takes a village to make this happen, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so it's a really cool multidisciplinary approach where we all kind of work together and I think there's a lot of uh, like great teamwork. Obviously, sometimes there's going to be time for we disagree and actually we probably learn the most from those times and when people say, hey, this is something you should watch out for. And we kind of all take a pause because I think we learn so much from other people's perspective on how we look at things. Do you guys have a conference? So obviously these patients are coming through, they've been referred in through, through the general cardiology team and or uh, other referrers. They're seen in clinic in your in your valve clinic with maybe cardiology and and CT surgery and and their workup is initiated with the non invasive imaging that's required, and then when there's questions or discussions about uh, where the patient fits as with respect to their their risk for different procedures, do you guys present these patients at a at a conference where where you're all kind of sitting around a, a table etc. and and going over things and discussing things, or is this handled in clinic? Yeah, no, we uh, we obviously um, have a clinic discussion. You kind of know we are, but that's to the surgeon or myself or just two two people. And then usually they'll come out. We'll after all their workup gets evaluated, things are done. Then they'll get presented at the larger conference, which we have usually every Wednesday morning, where we'll usually present about you know fifteen to twenty structural cases, some powerpoints, and go through everything in detail about them. You know, and kind of rediscuss anything so that the broader audience gets to be involved in conversation. So, yeah, it's kind of uh, kind of interesting to see all the different work that happens there. Sure, and can you touch on uh, STS risk and and how that factors into where these patients? fall and how we evaluate them for SAVR versus TAVR or, or possibly even palliative care? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously in the past, um, you know, so the STS main goal was uh, in terms of evaluation was looking at the likelihood for mortality. And so in the past, you know, we, uh, we, we looked at patients who were very high risk and if their risk was very high, you know, over 8%, you know, I think we were thinking these patients as being at uh, prohibitive risk for surgery. And so they usually were classified as patients who would go into average. And over the last couple of years, we've kind of redefined these goals that three to 6% risk, which is intermediate, started to grow out more. Finals demonstrated a certain equivalence between transcatheter and surgical valve replacements. And then to the point at which now even the lowest population is still ones less than 3%, where we're now starting to consider intervention on them. It's you know, about a year, year and a half ago, uh, there was a present, presented trial uh, that actually demonstrated that in some instances, depending on the value you use, transcapital valves may actually be superior to surgery and at minimum are non inferior. And so now we kind of reach this level of complete equivalence across the STS uh, risk strata spectra, whereby we can kind of think of all these patients as having the options for surgery or transcatheter, really looking at um, individual reasons to maybe choose surgery over transcatheter or vice versa, rather than saying there's specific STS risk that would point you in one direction over another. And then you did mention a really important point. I mean, that we do get occasionally patients who are just so critically ill or have so many uh, medical problems that perhaps doing anything on them would be inappropriate because you to fix their value issue. They might die within a year anyway. And in those instances, um, we don't, might even contemplate kind of care or think about doing something like, like a balloon valveoplasty, which maybe will be the benefit of the replacement, but is a much lower risk procedure to the patient. And, and we do do that just to give some palliative sort of gain. So yeah, there's um, sort of a broad range of spectrum we can kind of treat here. So other than low, intermediate, and high risk by traditional uh, STS criteria, what are some other factors that really play a role in, in shifting you towards SAVR or towards TAVI? I think the number one thing is frailty. You know, it's amazing how frailty kind of enters into the STS risk, but doesn't really give you a clear understanding. You know, you might have a patient whose STS risk is all 2%, but you look at them, they're walking with a walker, they're, they're incredibly frail, they're gaunt, they're maybe emaciated just from, you know, cardiac cachexia, and they just, they look awful. And so I think frailty is a huge measure, measuring subjectively, as well as subjectively, but objectively measure this by things like grip strength, which we measure um, in our valve clinic, uh, as well as like walking distance. So we do a couple of things there that says that. You know, other factors, things like uh, radiation to the chest can be a frequent thing. So people with Hodgkin's or ultra radiation. You know, for them, that's, that's a big risk. Anyone who's in prior sternotomy, we you know, have you know, for our, the risk for repeat is obviously there. SAVR, basically, with radiation or sternotomy. Yeah, risk of SAVR is you got to reopen the chest. And those are all factors to kind of look back at. How about access? Yeah, access is a huge one. And I think it's kind of changed in terms of landscape over the years. So I would say three to four years ago, we used to look at patients and say, hey, their access is a problem. Maybe we should just go surgical because they don't have great vascular access because that was our big Achilles heel. You know, I think the, the devices have changed so much since we first started. Nowadays, Tamar valves are, you know, around the 14 to 16 French range. You know, back in that day, they used to be up to like 23 French. And so, you know, the difference in size is just drastic. Uh, and even just the flexibility, the sheaths that are used now are just slicker and easier to get up there that it's very rare that we can't usually advance through it. But if someone does have bad vascular disease, uh, there'll be some institution. We've been actually started to do, uh, you know, 
pre-seeding vascular procedures where we might have either myself or IR guy or vascular surgeon, one of us might, you know, throw in a couple of stents in the iliac, cover stents and pre-treat their vascular disease to help us. But there are some instances where that's not feasible. If someone has, you know, an aerodynamic inclusion or something, or just really severe disease where we would be able to get the, the results. We saw the option of alternative access where we could do a transcoronic where a vascular surgeon or a CT surgeon can uh, get us an access at the common carotid level. I want to see axillary to a fair bit of pertax. Transcable procedures, so we've done several transcable procedures or crossover from IBC to aorta. So I think we've got a whole bunch of different procedures that we've been able to do. What's, what's your institution's alternate access of choice? Yeah, this is transition. In the beginning, um, it was all direct aorta because that was where our surgeons liked the most. Um, then for a while it was axillary until we kind of realized they were having a lot of strokes. I think the world kind of transitioned from that. So then we were on the transcanal kick for a while and uh, that was, that was fine. But, uh, there's some challenges getting that done because it's not difficult to this. Can you, can you explain the transcable approach? I think that's pretty, yeah. even if it's Yeah, transcable is probably one of the coolest things that I've ever heard of just in, in medicine altogether. It's just, it's a really interesting thing. So, you know, it's, it's probably people know is the radiology realm. So the I realized as a cardiologist that the IMC and the aorta were actually pretty close together in the retroperitoneal space. And actually in many instances are adherent. If you look back at those scans, they're less than one centimeter away. And so we used uh, a couple of guys, so Niederman, uh, Phil O'Neill, we came up with this concept saying, hey, maybe we can cross over from the IMC to the aorta and, and avoid the iliac vasculature completely. And uh, so they came up with a thought of just um, putting a catheter, aiming it, kind of in free space and putting a snare in the aorta from the radio and then just crossing over by using an electrified guide wire. So you take like, a confiance wire, you, you clip off the distal a couple uh, centimeters from it, and then you attach it to, uh, uh, to your electrocautery. And you basically just advance the wire like a hot knife to butter across the IMC to the aorta. And once it gets there, it goes right to the snare, to the snare. And once you have the snare wire, you basically gradually uh, increase that uh, 0 4 wire to a 3-5 wire and then trade it out for a sheet. And once you have the sheet there, then you can just do your procedure. Um, and then, <laughs> in the end of the procedure, how do you... Yeah, in the end of the procedure, everyone kind of takes a little deep breath, you know, but between kind of uh, <laughs> get, getting stressed out Maybe a couple of issues, but uh, being just at the end, you know, when you're taking out the sheet, you basically put in a closure device, uh, like an like ASD PFO kind of closure device. I usually use the muscular BSC device. So a lot of people use what's called it, and plastic ductal occluder, the ADO, and you basically uh, do that and uh, and remove it. That's uh, that's a pretty neat, even if it's it's something that we that structural teams don't end up utilizing routinely but so for access it sounds like 95 percent of your case is going to be femoral approach is that fair to say or a large percentage i would say yeah 95 percent is absolutely accurate to the transfemoral crisp yep. and and i didn't catch it so your access of your secondary access of choice oh yeah so now we've kind of transitioned to karate which um, also is very counterintuitive because you would think by obstructing the coronid that that would be bad, but seemingly patients doing really well with this. The, the coronid is, is now becoming the, uh, the standard of care for a lot of alternate access procedures. Okay. So back to our, our TAVR patient or our severe aortic stenosis patient rather. So you, you'll risk stratify based on STS risk. Then you'll look at things like frailty access. Uh, maybe you can elaborate on the CT findings that may push you one way or the other. 
Yeah, you know, like I think the big things are aside from access and, and national patient themselves, the, the other things that we kind of look at are, you know, are there other factors that somebody might need surgery for? So, you know, from a CAT scan perspective, this could include, you know, aortic aneurysm, for instance. Another class example is some if somebody had, you know, a bicuspid bowel pathology and they're 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 young, they might be somebody who maybe benefited, especially if they have an aortic aneurysm to get their their aortic root taken care of along with with the the valve. So surgery may be better for them. You know, and, and obviously things like age, because younger patients, maybe they'd be better off getting a mechanical valve because, you know, that's going to be a longer lasting valve potential. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a couple of different things we want to focus on there. If the calf films show a lot of coronary disease, that would be multi-vessel PCI. Maybe that's somebody better dealt with with bypass surgery and and the valve together. So, you know, a lot of this is coming down to that specific findings, but rather holistically looking at saying, is there one reason that, or a couple of reasons that somebody might be better served by surgery rather than getting a capital-based approach? So this is all kind of the the case planning or, or workup that goes into evaluating these patients. And then included in this is, is the case planning. Do you mind just briefly discussing the technical aspects of the case and kind of, you know, from, from stick time to valve implantation and, and closure? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously right after we get access, which nowadays we, uh, we pretty much do with ultrasound exclusively, you know, usually we, we do a lot of radial tabbers. What I, what I mean by that is not with the valve for the radio, but we'll get the ultrasound to get access to the uh, the artery vein in the leg, but we'll get a radial access usually to to put a pigtail catheter in front. And pigtails in the ascending aorta allow us to take the angiograms to kind of know where we're going. It'll also serve as our bailout at the end. Our groin access, um, which we obtain the femoral arterial access, is then pre-closed um, after we do nearly a femoral angiogram with two pre-closes typically. And after this, we'll upsize and implant our, our sheet for doing the Edward system. It's our Medtronic system. We'll just crawl across the valve first, but we'll just kind of, uh, it's short technical. 14, 16, so it starts at 14. It's an expandable sheet. So that means as the device goes through, the sheet expands from 14 to about 16. And then what we'll do is we'll basically place a, a catheter through an AL1 or an FR4, and we'll use that to cross into the air, across the aortic balance of the left ventricle. And we'll deposit the stip wire there. And this stip wire is, uh, there's a couple of wires we can use, a lung request or a safari wire, fan plats as super stiff. So we'll use any one of those wires. And then we'll basically just take our balances, just plant, which is uh, usually all connected together and prepped. And then we'll, un- if it's Edwards valve, under rapid pacings, we'll pace like 160 to 180 beats per minute with temporary venous wire. And that's pointed to the, to the name. And we do this because when you, when you pace it like 180, the heart is essentially still to sound moving. You're not getting cardiac output. Then you have no PVCs. And at that moment, we can inflate the valve by using that pigtail ejections to know where we are. And then once we're done, we can remove the system, confer with echo that everything looks good, and then perform our, our closure devices afterwards. Are you guys um, using moderate uh, sedation or, or anesthesia for the majority of your cases? We've been, we still have an anesthesiologist, I can see, I think just for emergencies, we do that, but we've been doing like conscious sedation taver for pretty much the entire time I've been at Bassard Group for like this last three years, definitely. And uh, that's kind of where the world has gone to. We, we very rarely intubate, and it's usually only when we have like 
bad imaging issue that we need TE for, or if there's like a really bad airway, you know, someone's morbidly obese or other, other medical problems that really make them a suboptimal candidate for consciousness. Out of your, your TAVR population, how many of these patients are, are, are falling into intermediate risk or, or even low risk by SDS criteria? Yeah, I mean, it used to be that we were, you know, obviously the vast percent of our patients were high risk or intermediate risk. Now, I think it's really transitioned to the point where I would say about uh, 40 to 50% of our patients are in that low risk category, about 20 to 30% intermediate risk, and then the remaining percentage is high risk. And so we're really seeing that shift towards a lower and lower risk populace. So let's talk about some interesting clinical dilemmas. Certainly the, the, the use of this device is broadened across all, all our risk profiles. Younger patients, you know, let's say less than 50 or less than 65, whatever, whatever your cutoff is. Is there an age in which your institution says, okay, maybe SAVR with a mechanical valve is better just because we expect this patient to, you know, to, to live for a long time after this procedure? Not a strict cutoff, but definitely we really start to look at patients who are younger than 65, you know, and, and really start to have a conversation about whether a mechanical valve would be better for them. You know, definitely our client tests who are 40s and 50s. I think we, we, we really like those patients to try and be getting a mechanical valve just for the longevity as long as they can tolerate it. But really, once you get over 65, I think that there's such a strong patient preference for TAVR that we've been really mostly focused on offering that for that patient population. And we always talk about surgery and we offer it to the patient if they're in the lowest category or even in the medium risk category. I would say that it's, it's the minority of patients that opt first for open heart surgery over, over tavern values. And how about valve and valves? Where's, uh, how do you feel about that? Have you, have you reached? Oh, the- yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think valve and valve is definitely a TAVR only realm now. I mean, it used to be that that would be something that we would be worried about, concerned about. Actually, I would say that valve and valves, the outcomes are certainly better and data supports that. There's actually some recent uh, studies looking at this uh, retrospective and and clearly the uh, the outcomes were excellent with TAVR. So I think that that's something that, um, you know, going back for another sternotomy, Repeat phenomenon is just, it's, it's always awful. You know, you're always trying to avoid it if it's feasible. So, you know, we, we've got good results with that. Nowadays, that's kind of where our focus is. Is the, you know, the concept of valve and valve or, or the success that we've had with valve and valve tavern, does that affect the initial decision with what type of uh, valve may be placed for SAVR patients or even whether they go for SAVR first versus TAVR first? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think obviously for a younger patient, you know, we, we want to avoid as many future interventions as possible. And yet we also have to be cognizant that they may need a BP intervention. So, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly nowadays, I would say the vast majority of surgical allows me placed at most are mechanical some sort of things. Everybody else is kind of going towards tavern. But if you are getting a younger patient, yeah, we're also thinking that if they don't want a mechanical op, getting a surgically placed bioprosthetic valve at least offers the option of a repeat the down down tavern down the line. And so that's something that we've been uh, talking about as a group saying, hey, you know, we want to focus this kind of attention. And that's always just the case by case scenario. Um, but simultaneous with this is also this, you know, the, the advances in surgical valves, which we really haven't talked about, but with things like, you know, onyx valves, which, you know, are low INR valves where uh, they have lower clot risk, lower thrombosis risk. And so people can, you know, surgeons can plant this in patients knowing that they can get as good of a result with a lower INR um, and perhaps maybe good longevity with those kind of valves. 
Uh, and so we're kind of finding that there's these two competing growths um, between new surgical valves as well as our, our transcatheter technology. So obviously, you know, it's, it's going to be always that individualized decision, how you approach that um, in terms of how you go forward. I think, you know, our listeners, certainly cardiology listeners would, would appreciate kind of a discussion about, about, you know, your, uh, your current job. I, I think we touched on your pathway a little bit and, and how, how you got here, but, but you did have a stop in, you know, in another location prior to finding this, this situation that, where you, where you found success. Can you, can you talk to our, our younger interventional cardiologists and, and even trainees about your path specifically to get where you are and what they can, uh, what they should be looking at and focusing on. Yeah, no, thank you. So I definitely, I think, you know, um, the hardest thing to understand is when you're in training, you kind of see all these things that are being done, especially if you're in an academic institution, you kind of imagine your career is going to be a certain way. And in, in the beginning, you know, when you take your first shot, it may not necessarily be reflective of what that is. And what kind of comes down at that point is trying to decide what is important in your goals. Um, is your goal just to you know, really good doctor, but not necessarily doing certain type of procedure, certain type of thing. Um, are you, is your goal to be in a specific location? Because that may restrict the kind of jobs you may find. Is your goal just to make, you know, uh, I hate to be brutal, but just make the most amount of money, in which case there may be a totally different job that might be better for you. And I think that, you know, each of those goals and maybe melding what percentage important to weight you have each of those that would kind of help you decide you know, which job is going to be best. And I think also adding into this things like lifestyle, you know, is your, is your lifestyle going to be better doing one thing or another? Is your, uh, is your family going to be happier or one thing or another? Um, I think kind of adding all those things together kind of can help you kind of pick your career. But I, I also think that was important uh, advice, not to, I think, to the quality providers uh, as well as like it. So we're both in similar boats is realizing that your first job and come out with it is not necessarily the job you're going to stay in for the rest of your life either. And it may take a few opportunities for you to explore and figure out what it in fact is going to, is going to provide you the optimal job satisfaction. And perhaps that first job is even a learning experience, a stepping stone to get to where you eventually want to be also. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's certainly a process, right? What we imagine, and we touched on it before, what we imagine finishing fellowship and uh, what we imagine practicing is much different than the reality of what's, what's out there. And especially, you know, when you're targeting, we all seem to be targeting the same places, right? Everybody wants to live in a city in, in, in New York or LA downtown, right? And uh, there's, there's so much congestion there. And it's, it's hard to separate yourself in those locations. And, and, you know, when there's, there's a lot of congestion, it's hard to, to, to have the opportunity to do the things that you may want to, or that you imagine doing. And then also, you know, once you get out into practices and attending, you, you start forming your own ideas of, of what's, what's realistic for you as a person and what, what, which way you want to push. And, and that, that's probably continuously evolving. I'm sure if we spoke in five years, our, our goals would be different than they are today. That That's exactly right. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think just kind of uh, a, a lot of the process is just learning about yourself. And I think that it's kind of ironic that that we kind of, you know, after eight years or nine years of experience of training, you still don't always know that. But but I agree. I think it's a learning experience. 
was your initial job experience uh, a necessary part of your current success, you think? Would you have had the same success if you had landed here right out the bat? You know, that's that's a great question. I, I It's funny because my wife and I can argue that a lot of times and say, like, oh, I wonder if I just kind of got to this right after treating that things would have been even more advanced by now as opposed to like where I was. And yet on the flip side, I do think that those first couple of years on and coming out, you know, you're, you're, you're not, no matter how good of a training you were, you might have been the best fellow, you're the chief fellow, the chief resident, best trainee that everyone thought was at from the best programs. And yet there's just something different about coming out and doing it on your own with uh, making all the decisions on your own, you know, facing complications on your own, it's, you know, go with those M&Ms on your own. There is something about that that is just so unique that um, I, I think that unless you've experienced that, had that under your belt, to then go on and have the confidence to start doing great things or to start big programs or do things, it's just so hard. So I do think that that first couple of years, you know, maybe hardened me a little bit more to get to the point where I'd feel more confident, you know, taking certain things on that I wouldn't have necessarily done straight on trick and maybe made this position easier to develop and at a faster rate. What, what advice would you have for young interventionalists in training or, or early in their career who really want to pursue structural heart disease? What, what pearls do you have for them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's such a great career option. I think so many interventionists want to go into it, but not getting disheartened that the positions don't necessarily exist yet for what you want to do and understanding that that's going to grow as procedural volume grows all over the, the country and the world. But I think that, you know, the, the biggest advice I can give is for now getting that, that really good sound foundation in, in interventional training, uh, getting really good at basic things like access, getting really, really comfortable imaging. You know, I spent a lot of time, my imaging time, time in there with the CTMRI guys who were all radiologists at, uh, at Sinai, a lot of the radiologists, a couple of radiologists, and most of the radiologists. And it was just really helpful to get a perspective on how they look at imaging, understanding that three-dimensional aspect uh, of the heart was, was key to kind of being able to be successful in trial. All right, let's try some, uh, some fun questions. We've been very by the book so far. So let's do a speed round of ridiculous questions for you, Raj. You ready? Uh, sure. Yeah. That's as quick as you can, whatever comes to mind. All right. What's your favorite interventional cardiology procedure? Uh, my flip. Do you have back pain? All the time. <laughs> What's the longest structural procedure you've done? A complex VSD uh, closure, which took about, uh, about eight hours. Eight, eight hours. Oh my goodness. What's the fastest? The fastest interventional procedure is still always a, a STEMI. Yeah, there you go. All right, it's late in the day. You've done five cases, including an emergent STEMI with cardiogenic shock requiring hemodynamic support. You have one more elective case left. What do you absolutely not want to see on the board in this situation? Oh, man, I do not want to see a, a left main impeller moda BAV. That's usually like my, my heart sinks as soon as I see that late in the day. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what is still happens, right? <laughs> what, what, your lab runs late, right? What time? What time late? Yeah. What uh, time are you doing your last elective case on a, on a busy day? You know, on a busy day, it could be eight, nine. Um, at night, huh? At night, yeah. Oof. That's legit, man. All right. What procedure do you do as an interventional cardiologist with the greatest benefit to somebody's quality of life? Always, always STEMI. There's just nothing that makes someone better from a survival standpoint. But 
on a more elective basis, Tavern without question. People are just yeah. so short of and miserable and you put a new valve in and they just feel better the next morning. It's amazing. We'll, uh, we'll call it there, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Raj Narayan. Thank you. Thank you, Raj, for, uh, for joining us and, and sharing your experiences. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. 